You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hi, and welcome to an author debriefing from the International Spy Museum. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Here at the Spy Museum, we get the world's most interesting authors, including journalists, scholars, former spies and intelligence officers, coming in to answer questions about their latest works dealing with espionage, intelligence, and other national security issues. Please join me in listening to another of our selected author debriefings. Okay, good afternoon and welcome uh, to the International Spy Museum, another one of our author debriefings. My name is Vince Houghton. I'm the historian and curator here at the museum. And we'd like to welcome Naveed Jamali, who is the author of this brand new book. It came out yesterday, How to Catch a Russian Spy. Now, normally when we have an author, I'll give you his background, his bio, where he went to school, what kind of books he wrote. But the book itself is really your bio. So I, I, I think a somewhat, I think, witty anecdote to kind of lead this off is appropriate. Because when we get a ton of books here at the museum that people send to us, if we want to carry it in the retail store, if we want to do a debriefing, uh, and we got the galley print, the, the publisher print of this, several months ago, actually. And I had never heard the story. I had never heard of you. Uh, I get this, and I didn't research it. I just opened it up, read the first couple chapters, and I put it down, and I said, this is never going to work as a spy novel. It's just completely <laughs> unbelievable. There's no way anyone would ever believe this as a spy novel. It's just so far over the top that people are just going to laugh it off. And then I put the book down. Actually, I never heard your name, but I, your co-author... Uh, is someone who I recognize because my, my, I'm from Florida, my wife's in politics, and your co-author actually wrote a book about Charlie Crist. And I said, Ellis doesn't write fiction. Is this really a nonfiction book? And I did a little bit of research, and I realized that this was an, actually a true story about a real person. Uh, and all of a sudden, fiction became stranger than reality. Uh, and, and you actually have an interesting way of, of uh, talking about this story, about trying to pitch this book... Yeah. To publishers, can you talk a little bit about sure. how you know you had some of the same experiences sure, sure. that I did? Well, first of all, thanks so much for having me. This is uh, Spy Museum is a great place uh, to be, and I'm thrilled to be here. Um, yeah, there's really no good way to tell people that you were a former double agent. It's kind of when I've told friends and family they and that we've sold this as a movie. They don't know whether to believe. They don't know what to believe. They're, you know, their, their reaction is, well, "Well, this can't be true." So. When I started pitching this, uh, there's this weird thing with publishing where you write a proposal and then the publisher, uh, the, the agents take you around to different publishing houses and you do your little song and dance. And I was with this wonderful co-author who's much you know, what better versed and schooled in this than I am. And I would do my little pitch. And when I was done talking, Ellis would turn to you know, the assembled suits in the room and say to them, see, he's not crazy. And <clears throat> the first time this happened, I said, okay, well, maybe this is just a publishing thing. This, this is how they close out meetings. <laughs> and uh, the second time, same thing. See, he's not crazy. 
Then the third time I said, okay, Alice, you, you got to tell me, is this like, what's the story behind this? Is the barrier to entry in this field really whether you're crazy or not? He said, Naveed, yes, it is. So <clears throat> my whole sort of foray into this field has been exactly what Vince was saying, which is people look at you and they're like, well, we can't quite, I mean, I can tell you the FBI, is, as, as Vince found out, their, their standard uh, approach to this is we can neither confirm nor deny the story, which is a way of saying, it's true, but we're not going to comment on it. But there's no way to really confirm this. So what I found is that most people, like the Russians, when I was working uh, in counterintelligence, they have to judge the, the, the validity and the, and the truthfulness of the story on whether you're crazy or not. So it's this common thread, as I joke with Vince, I've probably been judged sane by more random sort of <laughs> silos than most normal people. So that's my foray into this uh, next sort of uh, world here, and uh, it's well, been fun. You, you seem sane enough. So Thank we'll, you. we'll give you the benefit. My, my wife might disagree, but... <laughs> so uh, let's, let's kind of delve into your background a little bit. Um, like me, I actually, I, I can... In many ways, I can identify with you. We're, we're a couple months apart in age. We grew up around the same time. We, we both had, let's say, misguided youth. Uh, we weren't in and out of prison or anything, but we really, really didn't know what we wanted to be when right. we grew up. So we, true. we bounced around a little bit. Um, and like many in our generation, 9-11 changed all of that. Can you talk a little bit about the effect of 9-11 on your sure. career path? Sure. So as Vince said, uh, I, I say that school and I kind of were like oil and water. We just We had mutual respect for each other. And we both understood that it was probably better if we were separate. And uh, so I ended up at uh, New York University. Uh, I did Ar Army ROTC, and I was sort of graduated at the height of the dot-com era, and I got sucked into technology. And I was working at uh, some pretty interesting places, but I felt like something was missing. And when 9-11 happened, for me, I was living in Boston. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a New Yorker. And it just felt that there was, you know, the day-to-day -day just sort of felt, frankly, meaningless. And I looked at joining the military, and I found this wonderful program through the Navy called the Direct Commission Program. Uh, <clears throat> and I applied, and I put my heart and soul into it and was, frankly, devastated when I didn't get in. So for me, that became – and I had this wonderful recruiter, uh, Lino Covarubias, this salt-of-the-earth, Quincy, Massachusetts guy who – you know, said, Naveed, don't, if it's something you really want, don't give up. And uh, the only thing is that when you reapply, your package that you submit to the Navy again, there has to be something different from your original resume, from your original application. So I guess an easier route would have been to go to graduate school. And for me, like I said, school and I, I started graduate school at Harvard, and I hated it. And I ended up back in New York, and I said to, you know, we had this weird connection through the FBI, and basically approached the FBI and said, if I help you with these Russians, do you think you guys would write me a letter of recommendation for this Navy program? And <clears throat> the FBI sort of took the approach, well, you know, we'll have to think about this. And probably when they're getting back to the car, they're like, holy cow, we can get this guy to help us, and we don't have to get him out of prison. We don't have to pay him. You know, there's... You're not a mob boss. Yeah, there's no mob bosses, right? There's no, like, you know, body in the trunk. So... Essentially, 9-11 became this impetus to join the military, and the military became sort of how I fell into this whole crazy adventure. Well, you, you, you alluded to this relationship with the FBI, so let's, let's take a walk back and, sure. and talk about how that happened. And it's because your parents ran a business called Books and Research in New York, uh, where it wasn't a Barnes & Noble. They actually pulled in you know, government documents and, 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 and think tank documents and things that you couldn't just get off the shelf, 
And you write in the book that at 12 years old, you were in the store and a Russian walked in from the UN embassy. Uh, can you walk a little bit through this, this sure. process? So my, uh, <clears throat> my, my as, a, as you can guess from the name Naveed Jamali, I can't trace my lineage back to the Mayflower. Um, <laughs> my, both my parents are immigrants. My father's Pakistani, my mother's French. And unlike many immigrants, they came here to go to school. My father was a Fulbright scholar, and uh, as he jokes, he got a PhD in philosophy, and when he couldn't get a job at the philosophy factory, he decided to go into business for himself. So they ran this small company that uh, was doing research that would get books and, and manuals primarily for the federal government. They became a, a defense contractor. And one day in the late 80s, uh, they had this office in Columbus Circle. Um, there's a, just for a little dramatic effect, there's a knock on the door, and this man, as my father describes it, wearing a trench coat, walks in and shows my father a card. Doesn't let him hold it, but just shows it to him. And it says, Soviet something, United, you know, uh, mission to the United Nations. So my father's immediate reaction is, oh, wow, this is great. We're going to get an account from the United Nations. The man says, you know, I'd like to buy some books. And the books are sort of heady stuff, like nuclear disarmament and arms control. Nothing that jumps out as being spy, but, you know, things that probably two people a year read. It's probably one of them is like the author's mother. Um, <clears throat> oh, academia. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Academia. So he says, okay, I will, where should I ship it to? And oh, no, 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 I'll come back and pick it up. And this is, takes place maybe five minutes. Man's in and out. Father thinking, my father's thinking, this is great, we got an account. And he goes back to work. Not more than 10, 15 minutes later, two more men come in, and both wearing trench coats. And my father's like, what's the deal with trench coats? And they, this time, they're, they say, we're with the FBI. The man who just came in here with Soviet intelligence, what did he want? Uh, I said, just to buy some books. And they said, okay, uh, can I, should I show you the list? He said, yes. And he s basically wound up saying, what, should I, what, what do you want me to do? Get him his books. If he comes back, we'll be in touch. And so there started off an almost two-decade relationship between my parents and myself uh, but, uh, with the FBI and the Soviets and the Russians. So the Russians would come in, drop their order off for these sort of arcane highly technical manuals and books that were not classified. And then my parents would carefully, or not even carefully, would just meet with the FBI and show them what the Russians were ordering. This went on from the Soviets to the Russians to the end of the Cold War to where we are now. There was no perceivable change. So when I moved back to New York from Boston, I had this relationship, and I essentially went to the FBI and said, look, I'm taking over the account. I didn't really know how, what else to call it. And uh, this, is, this is sort of how I will be, you know, and I'd like to help you, and if you can in turn write me this letter of recommendation, you know, with a letter of recommendation, I don't know where that came from. I should have probably asked for something a little grander, but um, that's sort of how I got into this. And, and I think what's interesting as you describe in the book is every so often the Russians would try to slip in a document or two that was restricted to outsiders. And your parents were very good about saying, no, we can't give you this. Did that kind of seed your yes. idea a little bit? Maybe it's a leading question. <laughs> <laughs> so for those of us who are children of suburbia, it was, it's not unlike when you were, you know, uh, I'll date myself here. You'd go into a, a supermarket. You'd be like, I'm going to buy a Newsweek, a candy bar, uh, a toothpaste, and a can I get a six and Michelob, you know, and, uh, and also get some ice and, the, you know, the cat. Wait, 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 go back to the second to last. So that's exactly what the Russian, we'd call, we'd call it. Like, they'd slip in. They'd be like, oh, I want to buy, you know, ten Harry Potters and 
uh, you know, maybe this book on the speech and a copy of the Constitution and uh, the nuclear launch codes. And that, <laughs> and um, my parents would come back and just, or, you know, would say, uh, yeah, no, we, we can't, you know, we can't do that. So for me, it became, you know, my parents sort of, the way that we describe it is they have us, they had the status quo. They were helping the Russians, they were helping the FBI, but it was sort of an even, they never progressed it beyond, you know, that, that sort of initial relationship. And when I came in, I was a little more, I guess, gung-ho, and I, I, that was my pitch to the FBI. I said, you know, I think I can develop this relationship. And your main antagonist, I don't like to use that word because I actually like the guy a lot. <laughs> your main antagonist in all this was a man named Oleg Kulikov. That's right. Who you found out uh, from the FBI was somebody they knew very well. He was a GRU agent. He was Russian military intelligence. Uh, and this is really the relationship that takes up the majority of the book. It's really sure. this one-to-one relationship. And you describe him so well. I feel like I know Oleg. Um, really, a lot of what you're trying to do is try to find a way to to get him on the hook, to bait sure. him, to, to take that next step and to try to reach out to you. And it felt a little untrappy, but you were very good <laughs> in the book about talking about we have to do this the right way. Can I talk a little bit about Oleg and kind of introduce the audience sure. to him? So Oleg was, uh, as I found out, he's, he was this, I think his title was second secretary to the mission to the United Nations, Russian mission to the United Nations. Uh, he was part of the military staff committee, which is a subcommittee to the uh, general uh, to the Security Council. So he was a named diplomat, and as I found out, that really his job was to recruit spies. Um, there was this weird thing where I think the person – so the Russians would uh, meet with my parents, and just like any other diplomat, they rotate out every two or three years. So my sense is something happened where Oleg kind of got this low-level account. So the first time I met him, he was not very happy. He would come in, not say much, and we had these free books. And my first impression of Oleg was watching him come in, opening his coat, and taking out, and I kid you not, a black giant hefty bag, and literally with one arm, sweeping in the free samples of books into the hefty bag, and then put, and I was like, this is the, like, the Russian nuclear armed, like, this is what we're afraid. So um, I knew that I had access to him, and very, like, smart eyes. You could tell he was very bright, but he was much more harsh and less smooth than from what I understood his predecessors were and very uncomfortable talking to to me. So uh, one of the jokes that we, I mean, there's all pun intended, one of the first approaches that I made to Oleg was I came into our office. He had no idea who I was. So I decided the best way to approach him was to tell him a joke. And I told him a glasnost joke. And I, I won't ruin the joke other to say that it didn't go over well. And he looked at me and looked like, you know, I guess I have to tell the joke. It's, there's two men in Red Square, uh, and it's after the Berlin Wall has fallen, and uh, they're complaining about Glasnost. And one says, you know, with Gorbachev, I thought things were going to be better. We're standing here online for a gruel, and it, nothing's, nothing's, nothing's moving. The second one says, you know what? I'm so mad. I'm going to go shoot Gorbachev. First one says, you know what, that's a good idea. I'll, I'll save your line, your spot in line. So he goes. A few hours later, the second man comes back, and the first one says to him, did you shoot Gorbachev? No, there was a line for that too. <laughs> and when I tell that to Oleg, his reaction was, he looks at me and goes, I don't know anything about that. And, um, and that was, so that was, my, that was my first foray. I clearly had no idea what I was doing, and um, it didn't go over well, but somehow he kept coming back, and I realized... That was what I had to build on. 
Yeah, let's talk a little bit about Oleg as a professional, because he sure. truly was a professional intelligence officer. Yeah. Uh, he knew tradecraft. He was, at some point in the book, you talk about him, how just had, in a very casual conversation, got you talking about yourself and got you revealing details that you normally wouldn't have until you realized what was going on. Let's contradict that with you. <laughs> your, your training in tradecraft was, and I really appreciate this, was through popular culture. Was and, and that's being movie, probably yeah. like generous. Movies, TV, yeah, talk yeah. about seeing Ronin and Spy Games yeah. and all the Bond and Bourne movies and Magnum P.I. and all these things that, again, as a 10-year-old boy are exactly the same yeah, time. Yeah. I'm like thinking, I could be a spy. Totally. And that, that's really you're going I mean, yeah. mano a mano with a top-level GRU guy and you're only training is Jason Bourne. So the reason, I, I, I mean, the reason it worked is because, frankly, it was so stupid um, <laughs> that the, the Russians looked at this and were like, there's no way the FBI is involved. This is like amateur hour. But look, you know, I, I couldn't change my name. I couldn't change the car I drove. I couldn't change where I lived. I couldn't change what my education was. I, you know, none of these things that I knew the Russians could check on could I change. But what I could change was my personality. So as Vince mentioned, I created a persona when I met with a Russian based on, and I'm not exaggerating, these characters from these various movies. I would actually lift the lines from some of these movies and use them with Oleg. And it worked. For whatever reason, they totally, maybe he watched the same movies, but it totally, totally worked. And you know, to, to Oleg's credit, look, if, to understand the Russians, when they come to New York, they consider this enemy territory. The minute they step off that Aeroflot uh, plane, they're in enemy territory. And their level of paranoia is extreme. Um, and they're also very good at what they do. If you're going to come to the U.S., New York, or D.C., you, know, you have to be someone who's accomplished something. And it's not just – it's not your first assignment. Right. So uh, my sense is Oleg was probably – I mean, from – probably very well credentialed, and he was very good at what he did. Well, so I, I think people might take that for granted, that if you get a D.C. posting or a New York posting, it's like an American CIA agent getting a Moscow posting Absolutely. or Berlin. It's, it's not like you're being sent to Belize. Right. You know, or maybe. So uh, <laughs> when you describe your alter ego, and you actually use that term in the book, I, I thought it was very well done from a literary point of view, but also very easy to kind of understand, because you seem a nice, gentle guy, you know, seem to be get, good to get along with, but... You had to kind of come over the top. You had to toughen yourself up. It's true. There are kids in here, but let's say the a-hole version of yourself, <laughs> as you describe it. And, and part of that, you know, I, I, my dad's from Boston, so there is a little natural New York rivalry. <laughs> part of that is being a New Yorker. I sure, mean, you, sure. You have that innately as part of your personality, of but as you talk about, you get it from Hollywood also. <laughs> and, and part of this alter ego is creating this fake motivation mm -hmm. for the willingness to spy on your own country. Talk right. a little bit about what conclusion you came to. You know, this is a, this is a huge part of this, is, is motivation is the, is the cornerstone of, of really counterintelligence, intelligence. You're dealing with human beings. It's not cyber. It's, it's really two people sitting and talking. And Oleg, to his credit, was very good. At every meeting I, met, I, I had with him, he was interrogating me. He was debriefing me. He was looking for any signs of deception. He was looking for anything... And, uh, one of the examples I, I give is, you know, you, t you say something innocuous in your first meeting. He would ask you the same question six meetings later and see if there was any change in the answer. So they were very good at teasing out, you know, any difference, any, again, that sign of deception. So 
Oleg was uh, he was a, he was a tough one to sort of to deal with, and the alter ego and the motivation. You know, for me, it was the Navy. I was trying to get into the Navy. But I couldn't say to Oleg, well, I'm here because I need to be here with you so the FBI will write me a letter. Again, that letter of recommendation. Write me a letter of recommendation. They still haven't written me a letter, and I need to meet with you five more times. I couldn't do that. So the Russians had to have, there had to be a believable motivation for me uh, to be working for, the, for them. And there was this great acronym that uh, spy aficionados probably know. It's called MICE, Money, Ideology, Coercion, and Ego. And generally, within the spy world, that's understood as being the four sort of silos that motivate people to commit espionage. And for me, well, I couldn't do ideology because I'm not a – it wouldn't work. And coercion, well, he wasn't really twisting my arm. So it became about money and ego. And as Vince was saying, the a-hole, like I just – I took the approach of saying, look, I want money. That's what I'm after. And I'm smarter than the FBI, so they're not going to catch me. And that played in perfectly to what the Russians expected an American spy to be. So by playing that character and convincing that that was my motivation, I was able to hide my true motivation. And that's kind of where the whole double – and listen, it messes with you. You start to go a little crazy after doing this for three years. But, yeah, that's how – how I did it. Well, and you even talk in the book about how you use music to get you in and out of the mood. Sure. The idea of when you're going to meet with Oleg, you listen to certain kinds of music, more aggressive rap music, Jay-Z. And as you're trying to get back into your normal Naveed, yeah, you, you listen like to Beyonce. more chill music. Yeah, so you didn't, <laughs> you didn't go home and get all Hollywood it, you know, your wife in your ear. It, you know, it's, it, it's crazy. I, I, I'm living three lives. I, had, I was building a career. Um, I was recently married. And then, oh, by the way, I was also a double agent. And it was very hard to keep the three separate from each other. I mean, there were times that I would be going to meet with Oleg or the FBI, and you know, my wife would call me and say, "Oh, my, you know, my mother's driving me nuts." And I was like, "I, I literally can't think about this right now." But that's the reality of of doing this: is that you have these three lives, and they bleed into each other. So, trying to get yourself into the mood of, you know, that counterintelligence. And when you're coming from a meeting about, you know, accounting is, is very hard to switch. So you have to find these mechanisms to help you mentally prepare. Well, whatever you did at work, because the FBI certainly bought into <laughs> your scheme. Uh, I guess bringing them a fully formed case was a pretty good sure. way of pulling this off. Um, and there's only so much you can actually talk about with FBI counterintelligence. They're essentially as secret as a CIA, uh, but they gave you a code name. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about yes, that? Yes, yes. So everything that I did was almost by accident that I fell into these things. So um, I reached a certain point in doing this where the FBI, uh, I'd signed documents, various documents for them, and they said, okay, from now on, you're going to sign your document with your code name. Okay, this sounds good. That, that sounds kind of cool. And said, your, your code name is Green Kryptonite. And so my reaction was, what, My Little Pony was taken? Like, what, you couldn't come some, something like, you know, more Jason Borney or... So <clears throat> um, that became my code name. And as I said, you go a little crazy doing this stuff. And after about three years of doing this, I had this brilliant idea that it would be really smart and funny to get... And I'll, This is worth the wait. It, I thought it would be really funny and smart to get green kryptonite tattooed on my forearm in Morse, in Morse code, of course. So I did that, and it meant that – because like I said, you go a little insane, and you kind of want to get caught. So it meant that when I met with Oleg, I had to wear really long shirts, and long sleeve shirts, and 
it was just this silly, silly thing. And when I told the FBI, I didn't tell them until after the operation was over that I'd done this. They were like, are, are, you, are you kidding me? Like, what is wrong with you? But again, I, had no, I, really, I can't say that I had any idea what I was doing. This was really flying by the seat of my pants. Well, speaking of flying by the seat of your pants, I think there's a great, you actually start off with it. It's the beginning of the book, but you, later on you revisit it. Is chronologically, it comes later on. Is your first real chance to get Oleg's trust. <laughs> and you're, you're, you're going to hand over some documents. They're not top secret, but they're very hard for the Russians to get. And you devise this very spy movie-ish plan of a <laughs> parking garage and a secret clandestine meeting, and nothing goes right. Well, I mean, not, it doesn't go completely wrong, but right. pretty yeah, close works, to it. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, there was this uh, giant garage uh, close to where my office was where people, like, stored kind of fancy cars, and it was, uh, it was dark, and it just sort of seemed, you know, like something out of a thriller. So I decided I'd meet Oleg, pick him up at the train. We'd drive in, um, and we would go to – I had a second car. We'd open the trunk, and I'd show him these giant aircraft manuals, which were the size of phone books. And even though I was giving him a thumb drive – I felt that if I showed him the paper version, it added legitimacy to the fact that I had this fictitious project that I cooked up for the reason that I had this stuff. So we get in, and uh, the garage door opens, and Oleg, for his part, is probably thinking that you know, his goose is cooked. He's coming to this like, garage with no windows, and he probably expects the FBI to come and arrest him. And the minute we, walk, we get into the garage, he probably had some jamming device on him because my radar detector started like going crazy. So we get, and it's very tense, and... We park, and he makes me take my phone and turn it off and put it somewhere else. And he's looking at the manuals, and he's very impressed. And again, it's important to understand the Russians are investing not in the information just that I'm getting, giving to them, but to me, they want me to be a long-term asset. So he's very happy. He's going to have something to go back to Moscow to show, look, this guy has real stuff. So I show him the manuals, and I give him a thumb drive, and I say, okay, everything that you've seen here is on the thumb drive. He's very excited, and he's like, you can see the sort of wheel spinning. And I take the box, giant box, you know, must weigh 40, 45 pounds, because these males are huge. And I put it back in the other car. And I'm like, okay, are we done here? And he's like, yeah, yeah, we're done. And I'm about to close the trunk. And as I'm reaching up, it's a lift gate. He decides to take one more last look at the books. And he leans over. I didn't see. So what do I do? I slam the trunk on his head. (laughs) And... And we're both like, I'm stunned, and I thought I've killed them. Like, this is, this is going to go, like, this is going to go horribly, horribly wrong. And I stand back, and I go, he kind of staggers, and I'm, like, expect, expecting blood to come shooting out. And he, I look at him, and I go, are you okay? And he goes, yes, I have a very hard head. And he certainly did. And I, I, he was clearly, like, he probably was, like, on the verge of un- being unconscious, but he just did not want to show that he was in pain. It was one of those things where the minute he got there, I was like, oh, God damn it. But so we, we concluded business, and I get out of the, out of the uh, garage, and the, the FBI had given me a watch that I would record everything in, and I just could not stop laughing. I thought it was the funniest. I mean, I felt terrible for him, and he was, look, he was fine, so there was no, like, permanent damage. But it was, like, this is exactly what happened. You'd plan out these intricate, you know, movements. We, you, you war game out, and, you know, for every hour I met with Oleg, it was, like, 60 hours with the FBI, and then you close a trunk on his head. So best laid plans. So one, one of my favorite things about Oleg and what really endeared him to me was how he developed the way to communicate with you, the tradecraft. You actually had some interesting tradecraft, too. You you'd said you, know, you would reach out through the Denver Craigslist, <laughs> an ad that would tell Oleg you're ready to yeah, do business. W- but Oleg had a way of communicating with you 
that I thought was fascinating that involved some, let's say, less than five-star restaurants. Yeah, you know, yeah. So talk through that a little bit. Th- that, that seems to be something people really picked up on. So for me, I was expecting I'm going to be wined and dined and, you know, no. Uh, the Russians instead would take me to Pizzeria Uno's, Hooters. And by the way, if you haven't gone to Hooters with a Russian spy, I highly recommend <laughs> it. It's definitely a bucket list item. And <clears throat> so for me, I'm looking at this. I'm like, it's, the, it's no offense to – I'm sure Pizzeria Uno's and Hooters are fine establishments, but um, the food was not what – you know. I was looking for something. I was hoping something a little fancier. And to be fair to Oleg, he probably had a whole method of counter-surveillance. But instead – We'd meet at these like typical American like chain restaurants to conduct espionage. So here we are with Hooters girls discussing how to spy in America. It was this somewhat surreal moment. Um, and the, his method was he would give me a card for the restaurant we were going to meet next, and then with little warning, he would call me and say, "How about lunch today?" And I had to sort of pack everything up and go meet him at that restaurant. Uh, the end result, of course. No, we're not going to give away the ending of the book. Well, I'm still alive, so. Yeah. And the book <laughs> is called How to Catch a right, Russian right, right. Spy. Um, eventually, it got to the point where they were asking for some relatively high-level things sure. that they shouldn't get. Um, and uh, let, 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 again, I'm not trying to give away too sure. much. But let, let's talk. I mean, Oleg is not successful. You're still alive. I, right. Uh, I'm we'll here. He's there. not. He's there. You're not. Um, <laughs> One of the questions that I had uh, from the very beginning was, so what? Right. It's and, a, and that's a question that I ask every author, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's, it's what, what is the end game here? Like, what does this set the Russians back? Is this something uh, that can have some kind of a quantifiable end game to it? Now, it got you, again, to give away the end. I got it my got commission, right? It got you into right? the, the, Navy, the right? Office of Naval Intelligence, the Navy Reserve, uh, so that part of it's successful. Uh, but what, what do you know at least, or what can you surmise about what this did to Russian intelligence? Yeah, no, it, it's a great question. And obviously, one of the things when we were going around and pitching this, people said, well, how come I never heard about this? Well, because that's kind of what counterintelligence does. You're not always supposed to hear about these things. So, yeah, it's a great question. So what did this impact, did this have any impact on the Russians? And the short answer is yes. From my vantage point, it became about beating Oleg. I, I really was in sort of this mental combat, and I wanted to outsmart him and, and outmaneuver him. But in the end, uh, when an operation like this in, gets rolled up and the Russians are aware that they have been sort of caught red-handed, which they were. I don't want to give away the ending, but they were clearly aware that something had gone terribly wrong. Then as an intelligence, professional intelligence service, which the Russians are absolutely, you have to sit back and say, okay, what else has been compromised? Where did the hole come from? They don't necessarily assume, I mean, perhaps I was working for the FBI, but perhaps there's another reason that the FBI got onto Oleg. And then Anna Chapman happened shortly thereafter, and the hits kept kind of coming. So the Russians, my impression is that you stop. You stop collecting information. You stop meeting with assets. You stop running safe houses because you don't know what is compromised. And you go through every single program, and you do sort of an audit. And you say, this is good, this is not good. And you try to find the hole. So look, the Russians are back to their same nefarious activities, but I can say that safely say that for a period of time, as a result of this, they stopped collecting information, intelligence in the United States until they could figure out what had happened. In a broader sense, I mean, right now everyone looks at the Russians and Putin and goes, oh, those are the bad guys. They're clearly sure. back to their old tricks, whether it's in Crimea or Ukraine. But this is before that was taking place. I mean, Anna Chapman and the Russian 10 were really the big wake-up call 
for a lot of people, but you you predate that. You you, sure. were, you were able at least you know to, to confirm within the FBI that the Russians were back to their old ways of trying to gather information that they weren't supposed to get. Yeah, no, I mean it's look uh, the there's been much uh, made about the Patriot Act and. The reality is the Russian. Whatever you think about that from a legal standpoint, the Russians were terrified of using cell phones or email. They knew how good our technology was, and that's why they met with me in person. There was no email. There was nothing that could do a trace. You know, they really instead went to the tactic of in-person meetings. The Russians, their tactics date back to with my parents to the, you know the Cold War to the Soviets, and there was no change. They this this misnomer that foreign intelligence changes or stops, it, it's, its goal is to spy on us. I mean, the Russians have never changed that. It's never heightened. It's never decreased. It's been consistent, and it will most likely continue to be so. Um, regardless of what happens in Ukraine, you know, they want to collect information on us. Uh, let me ask you about the book title. <laughs> because I get the catch a Russian spy part. The how-to part is interesting because <laughs> there's, this is not a how-to book. I can't imagine there's going to be another situation like this anytime in the future. Yeah, right. Uh, for, for budding counterintelligence officers or budding intelligence officers, you do actually have a lot of really good information in this. Sure. But what, what do you tell? Because a lot of our audience may be people who want, like you did, to get involved in the intelligence world. What are lessons learned? Well, I was just telling this young lady here, like she was interested in, just do the exact opposite of what I did. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot easier. Go on USA Jobs and apply. It's probably the better way to do it. Um, trying to get involved in a you know a counter. I really, honestly, Honest to God, I, I fell into this. I had no idea. I thought that I was going to join the Navy, and that's where my service, and, and I'm not putting it down, but I thought that's where my adventure was going to be. I had no idea that getting involved in this was going to be an adventure of itself. And by the way, when I joined the Navy and I joined my first command, I, was, I checked in. I remember saying, you know, I'm here. I didn't tell them what, I was, what I'd done, but the first thing I said, okay, great. Um, you can plan out the Christmas party. So that was my first job. You know, and that's sort of the military government approach. Look, this was a really creative, it was almost like being in a startup. I mean, the FBI would come and say, what do you want to do? How do you want to do this? And at first I thought, oh, that's great. They're giving me so much freedom. And then I started to realize, no, what they're actually saying is we don't want any of our fingerprints on this. So if something goes wrong, it's totally on you. Um, but look, there's, there's the traditional world of, you know, you get your degree, uh, get a master's, and you know the the agency and all these places they have they're very good at recruiting and finding people. But there's a temperament, and what I found doing this is that if I just were to stand there and as you were strolling back um, out of here, and I pulled maybe ten of you aside and said, "Look, I know what you guys did. Um, it's just better if you tell me, and we'll work together to make sure that this is resolved." That. A, one or two people would probably confess to things that I had. So there's a there's a level of a personality that goes into this that is a, that is a requirement in order to do this work, and it's something that can't really be taught in a school. Right. But it's it's a temperament, and I'm weird like that. It just worked for me for whatever reason. Well, I mean, it's all about establishing trust. You had sure. to establish trust with Oleg. You had to establish trust with the FBI. It's about relationships. About this conversation. There there are people that have that innately sure. in them, and people that don't. That's that's a that's, I guess I do I for whatever reason I watch Magnum PI I guess that's the that's a takeaway. <laughs> so this for those of you that don't know this book has been optioned into an option. It's actually been bought as a movie. That's right. Uh, 20th Century Fox. The, the the attached you can read this is not I'm giving away secrets. The attached director is the guy who did one of the Spider-Man movies in 500 Days of Summer. Uh, 
who do you want playing you? Uh, so I have to give this sort of standard line, which is I'm really thrilled that Mark, Mark Webb is directing this movie. He's the one who did Spider-Man, the last two Spider-Mans, and I'm excited to see what he can do with it. And look, honestly, it's, I'm just thrilled that there's a book and a movie coming out. I mean, that's pretty cool. Uh, I will deflect that question and answer it with something totally different, which is <laughs> I, I'll tell you guys another little secret, um, just one last vignette. So the way that I got a book and eventual movie deal was a complete, just like with everything in my life in the last few years, seems to have been a complete accident. I ended up in uh, a training school for the Navy, and uh, you know I didn't know anyone in the classroom, and it's as much of these things are. It was a windowless room that was in San Diego, just downwind from the sewage treatment facility, so it smelled lovely. Um, and after being in a room with strangers for eight hours, we all started telling stories. And for whatever reason, I told this story. I hadn't told it in years. Um, and that night I went out and we had a couple of drinks, had a nice dinner, and I, uh, I was going back to my hotel room with a, with a fellow uh, officer, and he said, you know, Naveed, I, I want to tell you something, and I hope you don't freak out. Now, this is someone I just met like eight hours ago, so when someone tells you that and they want to confide something in you, it's never a good thing. So he's, he's making me swear, you can't say anything, you can't do this. And, all right, all right, I won't say anything. Um, he goes, uh, because people in the military really freak out about this. Just, just tell me. Uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a head writer for one of the, la- the late-night talk show hosts. That's your secret? Like, that's what you're afraid of? And he said, it was a great story. If you ever feel like writing a book, let me know. And I'll introduce him to a literary agent. Because you can't shop this story around. It's a weird thing. So I totally, by randomly meeting this guy and feeling comfortable telling him my story, he introduced me to a literary agent. We got a book deal. Um, that book deal, uh, the 16-page proposal we wrote somehow got to Hollywood. And before we'd even written one page of the book, we had a movie deal. And it was this total crazy thing that I went from you know, talking to all of you now so before, I just the only people who knew that I did this were my wife and a few FBI agents. So it's been like a total 180. And all of this is upside. I'm just happy, you know, I'm happy to tell this story and be able to share it. And it's, it's uh, you know, so whatever happens beyond that is out of my control, and I'm just thrilled to be here. That's a fantastic story. Who do you want to play you in the movie? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm very happy that Mark <laughs> Webb is... Uh, <laughs> Well, we want to take the opportunity to open this up to questions from you guys. Uh, if you'll please, we're going to have a couple mics floating around. Uh, if you'll wait for the mic to get to you, this is your chance to ask whatever questions you may have of Naveed. There's one right there. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, so now that it's pretty much public, do you fear, fear any repercussions? You know, it's, it's, a, it's a common question, and the short answer is no. Uh, the Russians really are... This is an ISIS or ISIL, or you're not dealing with terrorists. This is a professional intelligence service, and there's sort of understood rules. So, no, I mean, the one piece of advice the FBI gave me was just don't humiliate them. Don't, and frankly, there's, there's nothing that they have to be humiliated about. I mean, they did a damn good job, and we won this round, but they've won plenty of others since and before, and will continue to do so. So, I don't think that there's a, there's a risk. I, as, as I say in my tagline, I probably won't be traveling to Russia anytime soon. But beyond that, no. I, well, you won't have to because although this book's been translated into many, many languages, yeah. Russian is probably not one of them. No, no, yeah. no. Yeah. <laughs> what else? Uh, I don't know. Uh, back there. Oh, there was a comment. 
Does your parents' bookshop still exist? No, it wasn't. It, it doesn't. We we uh, short answer is no. We ended up selling off parts of it, I and mean, this occurred in two thousand five to about two thousand nine. So they've they're long since retired and, and, and out of the out of the business. So did your wife know that you were doing this all along? Uh, did you involve her in the process that you find out by accident? Was she ever, like, there, there's, I don't want to ruin it because it's such a great story. The story is fantastic. And, and I, yeah, but okay. yeah, there's, there's a great way that she found out, and I'll just leave it as a hand, hanging sort of dangle here. It involves a tampon and an FBI agent, and we'll just leave it there. <laughs> so now you have to read the book. Yeah. Uh, up here, Laura's right there. Was there ever a time when you think Oleg might have suspected that you were in connection with the FBI throughout the entire process, or no? You know, short answer, no. And the only reason is because he really had to stick his neck out to his superior. Oleg, you know, even though he's here, he's, it's a military organization, there's a chain of command, he had to go to his superiors and say, look, this is something we, we have a limited amount of time and treasure. This is something that I think we should invest both in. And if he hadn't believed that, if he didn't believe that, he wouldn't have stuck his neck out. And that's that's really where he got, you know, he was bested. So I don't think that I think that he's all. They're always paranoid. And they're always the sense that uh, you know you could be co-opted or, or you know turned. But look, he pushed this forward. If he hadn't believed, he did. If he didn't hadn't, uh, had faith that this was real, he wouldn't have pushed it forward. Even, you even referenced this before, that you were so unorthodox in your approach that, I mean, the Russians, like we, have a playbook. Yeah. And you were nowhere near the playbook. No, you were they, so far outside of the normal, here's what you do to recruit an agent kind of playbook that he may have not have seen it coming. No, they, they, I mean, between the FBI and the, and the Russians, they just didn't really know what to do with me. Um, so, yeah, no, that, that was really, as we said early on, the fact that uh, it was so unconventional, the Russians looked at this and said, there's no way the FBI is this, you know, is doing this. So, was there ever a time that you became like extremely paranoid, um, even both during and after? You know, like that you started looking behind you like every moment or anything like that. I just, I'm, I'm curious. Sure, about that. sure. You know, yes. I mean, I'd walk around and I'd be like, oh, there's a black van with tinted windows. You know, is someone going to roll down, like, open the door and grab me? Or is it just a black fan with tinted, window, tinted windows? You just don't know. That's the weird thing. That's the thing that you kind of have to live with when you do this sort of stuff is that things are so compartmentalized. Again, I was involved in a totally classified mission. The FBI, you know, none of the people who were involved in that can talk about this. I'm in this weird position than I can. But even though I was involved in it, and even though, as I found out later, that I had more face time talking to Russian spies than pretty much anyone in the FBI... I had no idea what the FBI was doing. What they state, like Oleg's bio, his you know his file, I never saw. So all that stuff was behind the curtain. And in this weird way, because I didn't see that, when I dealt with Oleg, it was hard to en envision that he was anything more than Oleg. I knew conceptually that he was part of the Russian you know military intelligence, but I didn't ever see that part of it. I just saw Oleg, and that was became both a defense mechanism and a, and a practical way of just working this. But yes, I was paranoid. I won't say I wasn't. There are, there are instances in the book where you talk about being in the bathroom when you're meeting with Oleg and somebody coming in right sure. after you with a brand new New York Jets hat that... Like, uncreased. It was... Yeah, 
you just get the sense that, again, it would make sense that if the Russians are meeting with, a, with an asset that they're going to have surveillance and counter-surveillance teams. It just seems like that would make sense. Could, that's what I would assume, but I don't know for a fact. There were people that would follow me into the bathroom, and look, maybe someone just had to pee. I mean, it, it could have just been something as simple as that, right? It's a biological function, or, or it could have just been something completely not else. And when I told that to the FBI, and they would, God bless them, they would say the most cryptic, unreassuring things. They'd be like, well, when there's doubt, there is no doubt. What the hell does that mean? <laughs> I love what they responded when you said, is there any danger to me? Yeah, right. They're like, well, they, they may have guns, but they probably not. I'm like, what? What am I supposed to do with that? You're probably not to yeah. be tattooed. That's right. That's right. Yeah, probably. Not. You'll probably be fine. Yeah, and, but if you don't, and then they would be like, and if you if you suspect anything, just call nine one one. I'm like, are you, are you kidding? Uh, one over here. Yep. You mentioned your you sold your motivation as the M and the E. So I'm without ruining the book or whatever, was, was he, like, slipping you, like, a stack of cash or something? Oh, or yeah, abso- <laughs> abso- absolutely. Uh, this was... You, you, so one of the toughest things from a practical standpoint is what do you charge to sell out your country? And we had to sit down... I had to sit down and figure this out. Well, you know, so you can't charge too little because it seems like that's just ridiculous. And you can't charge too much because, listen, the Russians, just they don't have an unlimited source of money to do this. And at a certain point, they're going to say, well, if you're asking for a million dollars, we would joke, you know, the Austin Powers, one million dollars. They're just not going to, it's not worth it to them. So we had to, I had to develop this very, you know, carefully developed sort of nexus of, of what we, we would charge. And yes, and to the Russians' credit, I mean, they negotiated like crazy. They would come in and it'd be like, okay, it's $25,000, $25,000. And they'd say, 3000 No, twenty five. <laughs> Three. No, 25. Okay, 25. And I'm like, that, why don't you just start with 25? Like, what, what did that just get you? So they had this very weird way of negotiating. But yeah, it, it became about money. And that was a very, that was a way to defend against what I really felt. So um, they would slip me cash. I would then give it to the FBI and they would do whatever they need to do with it. And um, one of the funny things about this, or not so funny, but maybe funny for you, not for me at the time, <laughs> was that the FBI, at the end of this, um, you know, they gave me a check for some of the money that Oleg had slipped them. So essentially the nice thing is taxpayers, you guys can all rest assured that in an odd way, the Russians funded this entire operation against them. Um, totally true. Uh, so they, the FBI met with the assistant director of the FBI, and he gives me a check. And I'm like, what the hell am I supposed to do with a check from the FBI? And uh, there are two rules that the FBI told me. One don't ever drink with the Russians. And two, we can't help you with your taxes. And I meant like, you mean like H&R Block? No, no, we can't help you like get out of tax trouble. So I actually had to rec- report that, in- that money as income. So it was 32% taxed. <laughs> but I was like, there's no way that I'm going to take this money and not report it. So yes, money became a motivation, also became a practical matter to deal with. Well, and I, I love the story it's very small, so but of of Oleg trying to get you to sign a receipt oh, yeah. <laughs> for the money he paid you to, for espionage, right? And that you know, there's all these things where he probably had to get a receipt to show his superiors that he was really giving me the money, not pocketing it. But if I was a real spy, there's no way that you would. Oh yeah, sure. Can we get a duplicate sent to the Department of Justice? You know, like that sounds like a you, great you idea. You could have signed it green crypto. Yeah, right. Really messed which up which right. <laughs> <laughs> so. Uh, he he asked me to sign, and I, and I I gave him the you know what for it was that was a lot of fun. I, I lifted, and I want to ruin the, the the book, but I lifted, actually lifted lines from 
Michael Mann's Miami Vice and used it with Oleg in that moment. The ex like literally word for word, and it, and, I, and it worked. So, I have time for maybe one or two more. This is your chance. All right, up here. Hey, why not? What was the scariest moment during this entire time? What was that? Probably. Um, there were a couple of times where uh, the FBI wanted to pull the plug, and it, it just went from like zero to a hundred in terms of them turning on me, the FBI, pretty quickly. And I suddenly started to realize that I was, you know, I was useful as long as I was useful to them. And that was a pretty intense moment, and uh, it was pretty scary. I mean, I had to like turn over my computer, and they had like for everything short of a warrant. So, again these moments where I just was dealing with Oleg and two FBI agents and suddenly you, you forget that you're in between these two massive, two countries essentially, and you're just an individual. And your usefulness is, is only as long as you're useful. That's the, when you're not, they'll, you know, they'll discard you. All right, well, please join me in thanking Naveed Jamali for taking the time to talk to Satan Spina's hand. I hope you enjoyed this author debriefing. We'd like to know if you have any questions or comments about it. You can get in touch with us through email at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. We look forward to you joining us again for another of our author debriefings. And thanks for listening.